Welcome to Benefits, What Like It's Hard? The podcast that breaks down the truths and misconceptions about all things benefits. Not only do we talk about what you should know about the benefits offered to you through your employer, but we also tackle topics on physical and financial wellness. I mean, come on, what more could you want from a podcast? Join me, Libby Allison, each week to hear from people just like you sharing their own experiences and experts giving us the inside scoop on the information we need to be successful. Hi, everyone. Today we have a really special episode that I am so excited to share with you guys on Duchenne. And I will let Pat kind of give more information on what exactly that is. So we have Pat Furlong here, Jessica Shoemaker, and Brayden Leitner here to kind of talk about their experience with Duchenne. So hi, everyone. Hi. So I'm going to start with Pat. Pat, can you kind of give your background with this and an explanation of what it is? Sure. Thanks, Libby. Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. So my background is that I'm a nurse and I spend a good bit of my career in adult medicine, thinking that children that I knew didn't get sick because um, I probably wouldn't be good with sick children. Um, and I was much better with adults. So as I had my family long ago, I had four children, which happened to be two, two daughters first and then two sons came along a little bit later. And I noticed as they grew that they weren't keeping up with their peers, that they couldn't really walk, run, they couldn't do stairs, they couldn't jump. And I kept wondering about that. My husband is also a physician and I expressed my concern lots of times to lots of people to the point where they thought I was a little bit neurotic as a mom and um, seeing things that perhaps didn't exist. So on one day when my son Chris tried to ride a bike, he pulled, I think, a tendon in his Achilles right at the ankle and he started to cry. And that led to a doctor's visit the next day in which they took a test, a very simple blood test called a CPK, which measures an enzyme in the blood that is elevated when muscles are injured. It's significantly elevated when muscles have a disease. So what happened is when that CPK or CK was measured, what we were expecting in a normal value is like zero to 200. When they measured Chris's CPK that day, it was 70,000. So 70,000 CK is just so extraordinarily high that one, you don't just have a muscle injury, but you have a muscle disease. So on that day in June, and I think every mother in the world will remember that day and that time, they diagnosed Christopher with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So this is one of the muscular dystrophies, the predominant muscular dystrophy. At the same time, when we see this disease, we often say or think about a mother being a carrier of the disease because this is X-linked, which means it's on her X chromosome if she has this genetic mutation. Moms don't usually have symptoms of the disease because they have two X chromosomes. So essentially you have one good gene on one chromosome and a gene that has a mutation on the other chromosome. So what we see then in what happens is moms are carriers sometimes and their sons have a risk of getting that, that X linked or that dystrophin gene that carries disease, right? That's mutated or has an error in the gene. So my two boys were then diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. What I did then just having been in medicine for so long as I went on a search about what do we know here? What do we know? Because you assume in medicine that there's a diagnosis and a treatment, right? That was the assumption. So I asked about what is the treatment? What do we know about this disease? 
What are the treatments? How do we provide care? And as I explored those ideas and those questions, what I found by so many people is they knew the progression of the disease. They described it that children are diagnosed between the four and six years old. And then as they grow over the next period of years, muscle just can't survive because it doesn't have this protein in it. So skeletal muscle then starts to degenerate very rapidly the more they move around. So we usually see boys who are no longer able to walk by the time they're nine or 10 years old, sometimes 11 or 12, but in that range, they lose the ability to walk. They lose their arm strength in their later teens. And then this really does result sometimes in death because the heart is a muscle too. So as I researched this, finding several problems, one is that the standard of care didn't exist way back then. So we didn't know really how to preserve them. We didn't know how to care for them with what we knew right now. So what kind of medical tools could we apply? We didn't know that. The disease wasn't as well characterized as it is today. The disease at that time had a gene and a protein product. So they identified this was the first, one of the first genes that were identified and the protein that was associated. So the recipe is contained in your genes, right? And the recipe was this protein called dystrophin. So they knew we had a gene and they knew we had dystrophin was missing, but we didn't know much more than that. And then in, in addition to no standard of care of what do we do right now today to help these young boys, there was no real plan of what are we gonna to do tomorrow? And there were no companies investing in this disease to dr drive therapies forward. So we were at this position where no standard of care, no therapies, no companies involved. And when I looked at the research investment in this disease, it was back then, 25 years ago, minuscule, right? There was very little investment. Um, and in fact, there was no government investment in this disease. So because of that, and because my sons were on this very difficult and tragic path, I decided that we need several things. One is we need the ability to diagnose more quickly. We need a standard of care so that we know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it right now today. So what can we do today? We need more money in this disease, and we need the government to think about this disease and rare diseases. So I started an organization called Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, or PPMD. And the idea was to grow a community, to get parents together, researchers together, doctors together, and get them all sort of pointed in the right direction about these things. So we started by raising money. We started by creating centers of excellence, which are research centers of excellence at the time. One was to look at this gene and this protein product and see if you could fix it. And the other was to look at inflammation, because when muscle cells starts to go deteriorate, you, the body responds with inflammation. So looking at both of those things, um, we created two centers of excellence. And then the third thing we did was we went up to Washington, D.C. and started talking to the people at the National Institutes of Health, the Department of Defense, and the Center for Disease Control and saying, what can we do together? That resulted in writing a piece of legislation called the Muscular Dystrophy Care Act. And the Muscular Dystrophy Care Act had three components to it. One of them was research centers of excellence. The second one was standard of care. And the third one was a plan. So that was introduced into the House and Senate in 2001, passed into law and signed by George W. Bush. And from that day, 2001, until today, what we have done is we have standards of care for these young boys. We now have 46 companies in this space looking at how to fix that gene, how to replace dystrophin, how to fix what happens because it's absent. 
And we also have an investment um, that is now exceeding the billions of dollars, where I think at $4 billion, because we have 46 companies. The government investment has gone from essentially zero to $800 million over those past years. So now the investment has reached a tipping point, I think, that we will see therapies. We, are, we have several approvals, but we'll see more along the line. So I, I think what I can say is I, I felt so alone in this disease when my sons were diagnosed that I wanted to create a community selfishly so that I didn't feel alone, but more importantly, so no one felt alone. Wow. I think that that is such an inspiring story. Honestly, I, I kind of want to jump right into one of my questions that I have, which is kind of what inspired you to keep going? Because you took all of these different steps to get to where you are today. And I know that that was not easy. And I know that there must have been a lot of work that went into that. So how did you how did you keep going? Well, so, so that's a very interesting question, and I, and I hope I don't sound vindictive in my answer. This is my get-even strategy, really, because my sons lost their lives at 15 and 17. And you have, you have to put the grief and anger somewhere, right? You have to take it, put it together, wrap it in a ball, and put it somewhere. So I really thought about if, if I'm going to be this angry mom and the world ended and my life's no good, I have two daughters who are amazing, right? Who are just wonderful people. And I want them to have a full life and a, and a good life. And I want them to always remember their brothers and how important they were to us. So I felt like, okay, if you're going to take, if this, if this world and this disease takes my sons away, would I get even by really doing everything I thought about doing, right? Every good idea I can pursue, every investment we can look at, every way to build community. Can we go to hospitals and make sure they're delivering the best kinds of care to these parents so that parents don't feel like they have to fly from one end of the earth to the other to find a doctor who knows this disease? Could we make that investment and leverage bigger investments? Could we work with companies and tell them as they're developing therapies you know, how to do the clinical trials so that they're not burdensome to these families. So that, you know, that again, to these young boys, if we're going to get them in a clinical trial that they're going to have to go repeated times and have test after test and blood work after blood work and maybe a biopsy, can we talk to companies and make sure the parents' voice is there? Can we talk to the government and make sure that the FDA knows how important strategies and therapies are for these kids so that they can grow up and follow their dreams? So. My sons didn't get to, so I'm vindictive enough, I guess, to say that I'm not going to let another child go in that same manner. They're going to have ways to reach their dreams, and they're going to have therapies. And I guess that's, they inspire me. I mean, they just inspire me all the time. What I see them do, how brave they are, the trials they're in, the things they think about, the words they say, there's no one braver than a boy of Duchenne. So I trust that we can pursue their dreams with them. Yeah. I think that that's amazing. And honestly, like, thank you for the work that you've done, because if you weren't going to do it, who was going to do it? You know, I mean, I think that is amazing. Well, Libby, I think that the whole thing is, if you're inspired, then others are inspired, right? I have a whole community of people. Um, we're talking to others right here, right now, Jess, right? We're, we're talking to people yeah. who, I think, what is contagious? And we're living in a world that we're learning what's contagious. And all of the bad things that are contagious, but hope is contagious. And I think we have to remember that. 
And if we commit ourselves to hope and to working together, and, and as Ronald Reagan once said, just matters that you get there, right? It matters that you're present. It matters that you get there. It doesn't matter that there's any credit given to anybody. The credit is when we see these young boys, Braden, right? Reaching for his dreams, going to school, doing what he wants to do, getting a job, supporting his mom when she's old, you know, those kind of things. That's what we're looking for. I kind of, uh, so I kind of want to shift and as we're talking about some of the things that you've done, can you talk a little bit about parent project muscular dystrophy? So PPMD, I believe is what you call it for short. And then I know there's also been some really great things happening at Cincinnati Children's. So can you talk about both of those things and your experience sure. through that? Sure, PPMD is about 26 years old now. I started it 26 years ago and the idea to create community. So we, we look at ourselves as sort of four pillars. So it's research, care, education, and community. So we look at those four pillars and see how we can drive them forward. We still invest in research. We're always looking for new ideas. We're looking to improve the ideas that are, are on board right now to say, if you have one drug, can you make a better drug? So we're always looking to do research. We also are in gene therapy, so that's very exciting. So we know that if we give a genetic therapy to a young child right now, we'll have to redose them at some point later. So we're always pushing research forward. On the care side, which is where Cincinnati Children's comes in, you know, when my sons were diagnosed, I went to a doctor um, at Cincinnati Children's and he said to me, and again, this was so long ago, he said to me, you know, there's no hope and no help for your sons, right? We, we don't know enough, there's not enough money, there's not enough knowledge, and I can't do anything for them. I have to say that that day I wanted to strangle this person and I still in my head some days want to strangle him because first of all, you never say that to a patient, no matter, right? That's that's not appropriate. Um, when I was in tr training and certainly in my career, we would have never said that to a patient. Our transplant patients, we wouldn't have said, you know, we're gonna transplant your kidneys and I think they're gonna fail. We would have never been like that. So I still, and I think every mother who's heard those words or every father who's heard those words um, really remembers them. So um, when we look at Duchenne muscular dystrophy, what, what I did after the boys were, were diagnosed and I had that experience is I went down and talked to them about my experience, right? That, that I didn't think it was a fair position to be in as a patient or a patient's mom in this case, that somebody said, there's nothing for you, right? We're in medicine after all. So we began talking about this. And when I talked to the leadership of Cincinnati Children's long ago, we also talked about this disease doesn't just affect skeletal muscle. So while we see the effects of the disease primarily in skeletal muscle because they, you know, you lose the ability to move over time, it also affects the heart, and you can't see whether the heart's healthy or not by looking at a person. It affects bone. So because you're not growing and bouncing around on those bones, the bones get soft. Um, and also we use drugs that make them softer. It's so It also uh, affects endocrine system, the, the GI system. So this is what we call a multi-system disease in that some of the effects are crossing all symptom, systems. So if we're going to think about a multi-system disease, then if you're going to have appropriate care, you, you have to be in a, in a situation where there's multiple subspecialists. So it's not just a neurologist, it's a cardiologist, endocrinologist, it's a GI person. You know, it's, a, it's an endocrinologist that can look at those bones and look at other things. So in discussion with Cincinnati Children's long ago, I said, this is the kind of team we need, right? Somebody should come in and see all of these subspecialists so that you look holistically at this young man and say, these are the things we can do for you now. And Cincinnati Children's embraced that. I have to say, 
um, it, they were rem remarkably receptive to that opportunity. And so we, we certainly gave some financial support to that effort, but not the colossal support that you need to develop such an effort. And Cincinnati Children's was one of the first centers that had this multidisciplinary care for these young men. So when they come in, they don't just see one doc, they see this range of subspecialists that are able to really deliver holistically good care to these kids. So what we've seen in terms of data, so you always say, so what did that do? Right? What does that do for them? If we look at the data that they've been collecting, what we see is, you know, in the where my sons were stopped walking at eight or nine, these young men are still walking between 10 and 14 years old. So they push that. When we see my sons died in their teenage years at 15 and 17, we see young men living to 30 and 40 years old now. Um, some of them are going to college, having kids, you know, get it, you know, all of that. So what we see by delivering interdisciplinary care is really a change in the quality of life and the length of life. And so since Age Children's has been remarkable way back then to say, okay, good idea, let's try to do that. And certainly they have mastered it. That's awesome. I kind of want to switch over to Jessica and Brayden because I know that you guys have been kind of directly involved with Cincinnati Children's and you've been involved with PPMD. So can you guys talk about your experience with that while we're on the topic? Sure, sure. So I came into Brayden's life when he was about four or five years old. I am actually his stepmom. And that was around the same time that he had been diagnosed at his pediatrician. He lives in Savannah, Georgia most of the time, but comes up here to, to visit us. And I believe it was after his um, first year at MDA camp that another mom had talked to his mom and mentioned Cincinnati Children's. And it just so happened that that's where, you know, we live in Northern Kentucky, so we were super close. But it's, it's been an amazing experience, and I just want to thank you, Pat, for all that you did to establish and fight for the, the way that children does everything. It's always been an easy experience as far as the days that we've gone in there for the appointments, and they take the time, especially as Brayden became a teenager, and could understand more of the medical side of things. They've always done a great job of educating him. And I know even in the last two or three years, they've really moved to, to a spot where it's, it's convenient. It's more convenient for the patient than it is for the physicians, um, where most of the physicians are actually coming to a room in the neurology area or one of the other areas. So everybody's coming to you instead of you going all over the hospital. But it's really, it's just been for, for a situation that's not one that you hope to find yourself in. We've always felt well supported and well educated through children. Thank you for um, being here today and sharing your story. I think that this is like really special to kind of bring all of you guys together who have been through some of the same experiences and can talk to from a real perspective how it works. So I do want to ask, because our podcast focuses on being able to navigate your benefits, what is it like navigating, so not only your care when you have like a disease like this, but what is it like to navigate your benefits also 
and either of you can jump in to talk about that if you have any um, knowledge that you want to share. So yeah, we we actually, his dad and I have carried the health insurance for Brayden um, pretty much since the beginning. So we've dealt with you know the insurance carriers and getting things approved over time. And it is a difficult process out, outside of this disease. And I can only imagine that it would be even more difficult within, you know, all the special drugs, the therapies that they, that have helped Brayden over the years. Cincinnati Children's has been instrumental in, you know, getting any pre-approvals that were needed with with different things or working directly with the pharmacy or the medical equipment. You know, we've had to do some work on our end to, to kind of manage things, but it's, it's always ended up in us getting the results that we needed. The one thing that, you know, did not fall into that category of insurance was the drug that Braden is still on today. It's one of the ones that Pat had referred to earlier where he you know, you adjust the dosage as he gets older and things like that. But that drug initially, when he was five or six, was only available from the UK. So children's worked with us to help us get that prescription. It wasn't covered by insurance at the time, but they helped us, you know, to navigate how to, to do that. And it's really been instrumental in him being able to walk as long as he did. Pat, anything to add to that? Yeah, so I think, I mean, first of all, the insurance arena is really difficult, right? And I think because because Jessica lives here in Cincinnati and her insurance covers Cincinnati Children's, that's pretty spectacular, right? And Cincinnati Children's, as an interdisciplinary care center for Duchenne, we call these CDCCs, we have a certified Duchenne Care Center program at PPMD, and they are certified. I think one of the most important things there is the knowledge that they have about Duchenne. So as, as changes occur, they're really able to help you navigate because often you will you know, send in the, the request to the insurance company for a given, uh, given piece of equipment, and then you automatically, <laughs> seems like the first answer is no. Right. Um, so you get this negative response and some families are just so overwhelmed by that response that it immobilizes them for a while. But then what happens in a center like Cincinnati is you go back and say, I've gotten a negative result, you know, on the request. And then they sort of mount this challenge to go very uh, systematically about why this is needed, why it's important, why this equipment is going to be useful for the quality of life. So that they're able to help you navigate these very difficult waters in terms of an approved product uh, such as Braden's on. Again, this is a drug that has become available by prescription in the United States. And so some insurers start off with no, because there's a very inexpensive drug that has similar properties that can do similar things, except the very inexpensive drug has significant side effects. So you want this other drug with less side effects, right? So that so the first thing you can get is that the insurer says no, right? No, you use this other cheaper drug. And then the team makes this change of here's why this isn't necessary. You know, first of all, he's been on this other drug. Second of all, the side effects are of the less expensive drug are much more significant to his overall general health. So the burden of taking this other drug is going to be cause him more burden over time and less quality of life. So I think the beauty of these centers like Cincinnati is that they can make these arguments and help you. And so you don't get overwhelmed by the medical system. 
you know, I, I, I probably was naive before we even had any approvals in this country, and we now have three approvals in this country for different medicines that treat different patients. The one that Braden's on treats all of the patient or potentially treats all the patients. I think we as a community kind of thought once you get that hurdle of approval for a drug, right, never mind the equipment issues, but once you get that hurdle for a drug approved, of course people say yes, given the disease and the nature of the disease, but it's not true. It's sort of you get this approval and then there's that navigation to this similar to the equipment. So I think we're learning how to navigate those waters. Last, I think it's really important to understand that there's legislation in Congress. I don't know that it will be passed given the you know election year and so on, but there's there's legislation because can you imagine if you're a child that's insured in Kentucky and there's no certified center? Sometimes you, you're unable to cross state lines because the insurance won't cover you. So I think getting some of this legislation passed that children with rare diseases and, and specifically in our case, Duchenne, if you live in a state where there's no certified center or no interdisciplinary care available, then you should be allowed to go to a place where this kind of care is available because it makes a difference. Braden walk until he's 13 and a half, right? It certainly makes a difference so that you're in with experts so that they can manage your care, so that they can really help with your treatment, so that they maximize your function, protect that arm function at this moment with Braden, and then take advantage of other drugs, as well as clinical trials that might be relevant for that patient. So I think, you know, if you live in Cincinnati and are insured in Cincinnati, that's terrific. But we really also have to look at federal legislation to make sure that patients with Duchenne and other rare diseases are seen at places with expertise to see them. I totally agree with that. I think um, as we talk about just generally when it comes to navigating your benefits, it sounds like, and this is true for anything, if you get a denial originally, you probably should question it and you probably should make sure that nothing more can be done before you just get defeated by it, which is easier said than done, but it's super important to work with your providers and work with your insurance company to get the things that you need. So I think like that's the overall takeaway that I'm taking from this. You need to find an advocate in that center, right? <laughs> I, I think one of the things about Duchenne and other rare diseases is when you go to these centers, you find somebody who, who knows stuff, right? Who can be your advocate. Because you can't call the docs 24-7, but if there's a you know nurse clinician, a clinical coordinator, somebody, your go-to person, your social worker, that you can say, no, um, we just got this denial. Help guide me through the process. I, I think this goes also for schooling in an IEP. Make yourself some friends. And those relationships really do help when it comes to navigating these waters. I was just going to speak to another benefit outside of just health insurance that we were able to, to use that we had denial after denial, you know, the different times. Um, and that was a leave of absence from my previous employer to, and my husband worked there as well. Um, so we had both tried to get this leave of absence covered, medical care, caring for you know, family member. And, you know, you, you would think, like you said, you know, writing down like all of the details of the disease, they would be like, oh yeah, of course you need to be at home with him while he's visiting you. Like, of course that, that needs to happen. Um, but even in those situations, it needs to be written in a certain way for the human resources or leave of absence group that was managing that process to be able to approve it. There had to be certain boxes checked and certain types of wording could be there or couldn't be there. 
and really just being able to to talk to um, the leave of absence group at my previous employer and work with nurses at Children's. We were able to call and you know make sure that we you know we wrote down the name of this one nurse. I guess got the paperwork when it was faxed in that filled it out in a way that was correct to the like to his disease and you know it wasn't like a special one-time thing where you're caring for someone after surgery that would be easy to approve for him it's a lifelong disease and that's kind of how they have to throw it out and that didn't get approved but then we got we got the the other nurse involved that we, we talked to you know when we were in for appointments with him and she did, redid the paperwork and it got approved right away you know it's all about just making sure like you said that you have have friends on both sides and that you can get the information you need. Um, I've made plenty of calls over over the years to, you know, get the right code so that we can tell the doctor, you know, this is the, the code that will be approved or won't be approved or, you know, whatever the case might be. But it's, I, it's definitely key to have, you know, those friendly names and faces on both sides. So I want to make sure that we get to some other kind of more personal questions. So, and I think both of you guys can answer this question, but I'll refer to Jessica first. Can you just talk about like for other families who are working to navigate like a rare disease, what do you wish you would have known before? What do you like, what do you know now that you can share? Is it just like making sure what we just talked about, like making sure that you have friends, making sure that you have the right resources or what advice can you share? I think leaning into community, um, communities like Pat has created with PPMD, your family, your friends, like your local community, asking for help when you need it is a big thing. We have had, you know, situations where we had to ask different members of the family to help us, you know, look after Braden when he was younger and we weren't able to get that time away from work approved. So I think just leaning on the people that will support you, that's been huge for us. And in those communities like PPMD, learning from others that are further along in the process, further along in their, their own journeys has been helpful as well. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to, you know, like a coworker or a friend here locally that they're like, oh yeah, a friend, like my friend's son, has that and he'll like they'll connect us things like that pat what about you what what kind of knowledge can you share with us so i think one of the people that i spoke to early on was said this funny thing to me and it said and they said to me who's your us who is your us and and i think that's really important for families to think about right who's who is your us who's included in this small group because when when you have a rare disease Often family doesn't understand. Sometimes immediate family doesn't understand. So, so you as, as a parent are by definition the advocate, right? You have to explain to your family, to your extended family, what is this? What can I expect? What am I supposed to do, right? Because sometimes families don't know what to do, so they don't do anything. And that looks like they don't care, right? So I think you have to, first of all, educate the people around you. And then Go to social media. I know that Dr. Google gives misinformation, so that's not who <laughs> I recommend. But in general, with a rare disease, there's usually or hopefully an advocacy organization that's wrapped around that, sometimes more than one. 
And I, I don't think they're your physicians, but I certainly think they're your sounding board. You know, I wouldn't see an emergency at my house and go to social media before I went to my doc, but they're part of your us in terms of a sounding board. And maybe that's just, I'm struggling today, right? And, and I need a little bit of, of reinforcement that this is okay. So I, I think that, again, who's your us? You educate your family. You find your community online because it's there. Um, and trust that community again, not for medical, uh, not for medical answers. <laughs> then you find your us at that clinic that you trust and your go-to person. So I come back to that, right? And and I think fundamentally you have to realize that a no, what, whatever the no is, whether it's equipment, whether it's services, whether it's um, a drug that's been approved, a therapy that's been approved, the first no isn't no. It's it's a little bit of a test, a frustrating test as well, but it's a mm-hmm. test. And, and then I think finally, in terms of us, we're all in this together. We're all pushing the same envelope together. We all want the best for these kids. I think we have to recognize that we all look at things differently. And so if we look at something differently, it doesn't mean we're wrong or we don't care. It just means we're looking at it differently. So I think give each other and ourselves a little space in there and give our doctors a little space, give our social community a little space and try to walk this together. And last but not least, I've learned this repeatedly about once you create that us for yourself, say thank you. I can't tell you how much it is and how important it is to be grateful. Because sometimes, at least when my sons were here, I think the whole world was on my shoulders and and I'd forget to say thankful, right? I was a taker, like tell me this and get me this and do this. and, And I forgot to sit back and say, I'm really grateful for all of you doing everything. So if we're talking about lessons learned, find your us. Who are, who's that support community that you can rely on and be grateful for it and then expand it when possible. So uh, those are my lessons learned over those past years. Great. Thanks for sharing. I think that that's good advice, no matter what you're going through, honestly, but especially in this case, it definitely applies. So I kind of want to shift it over to Reed and I'd love to hear a few things from you. So I've been told that you have a little brother who's also been diagnosed with the disease. What advances do you hope PPMD and other organizations like it will make in the future to help your brother and yourself? Um, to, uh, to make stuff that you can get easier, like a wheelchair, to say, or to like get like a special vehicle easier because it's not really that easy because people right. make it hard to money and expenses and stuff but in reality it doesn't cost that much to do it it's just that they want to overprice it to make more money but they're trying to run a business so that kind of makes sense but it's also just makes it harder for everybody else because not everybody has like a lot of money yeah we had uh we had talked (laughs) a little bit in the car on the way up here and like accessibility and making making it easier, taking away that hassle of getting things approved or that huge price tag that comes along with some of the things that make life easier. I think, you know, like that that was a big thing that we we talked about other other than a cure. You know, we would we would all love a cure. Right. But of course we gotta leave that up to the researchers. <laughs> But, but yeah, just making, making those things, making the world more accessible, even though there are the, you know, ADA regulations 
in effect in buildings and everywhere, it's, it's hard to get around. There have been times where we had to walk like halfway down a block to find the wheelchair ramp to go up in order to visit someplace. And that's, that's not something I would know unless I was, unless I had Brayden with me. Like, even if I was with my, my younger daughters, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't see that. That's not something that you think about when you're able-bodied. But when, you know, when we have Brayden with us and we try to do as many, you know, memorable things or as many, as many experiences as possible, making them more accessible, it's difficult, but when it's done correctly, it's phenomenal. Um, I can actually give you an example of a fun way that we noticed that difference. So within about two years, I think we went to Disney World, and then we went to Universal. And Braden, which one was more accessible? I forget. I think Universal. Yes. Yeah. Universal was leaps and bounds more accessible than Disney, which yeah, for it kids shocked me. It's um, easier for kids and right. grown people. Right. But you know, they had all kind of rides that had like different entrances or different types of ways to get on the ride to to launch out into the ride that you didn't have to like rush the transfer you know as he gets older it's you know we have to carry him we have to pick him up to transfer him into a ride like you know like any of the rides that you would come in contact with at a at an amusement park and just the experience that we had there um it was actually his his mom and myself and brayden because um, his mom and I have become really good friends over the years, but we we were able to to do everything that he wanted to do that, within reason. That's on short. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was oh yeah. One, one or two roller coasters that he was too short for at the time, and you know we weren't able to do those. But that's I mean that's another that kind of ties back into the you know getting approval conversation because there are typically the boys with Duchenne have a um, stunted or basically don't hit puberty on their own. Because, it depends on what medicine you're on. So, right. Like medicine I'm on. Because, right. The medicine he's on prevented it. So that was one of the things that um, children's did a few years ago. They did a blood test to see if, if any of the hormones were present in his system and they weren't so they were able to help us go through the approval process the pre-approval process of course to get the drugs that he needed to to kickstart that because he you know for him it it wasn't something that we had to do necessarily um, but for him it was about being as much like a a normal able-bodied boy as possible people he I remember he would complain you know when he was 13 or 14 about people thinking he was like 10 years old or even younger when he was at the grocery store or somewhere else. The neurologist, she sat down with him and instead of looking at my husband and I, she looked at Brayden and she talked to him. You know, she wanted his input, taking into account like how he feels on a day-to-day basis was something that Cincinnati Children's was great at doing. Wow. I'm shocked to hear like the 
comparison between Universal and Disney World, actually. It shocked me too, but it, it's just, they, I think they, because a lot of their rides are newer, yeah, maybe that has something to do with it. There are a lot of older probably. rides at Disney. I don't know, but yeah, I was shocked too. But I, I talk about it as much as I can because it's just amazing how accessible Universal is. Yeah, that's amazing. So I just have one more question, and it's for you, Brayden. Um, what advice do you have for parents and siblings of other kids who have a rare disease similar to yours? Yeah, treat them as normal as possible. So not like say what this disease, take advantage of your disease because that ain't right. And then people look at you, I think, littler? I don't know. Maybe. And to like not go get, be down about it because that's not the right attitude. So I have like a positive attitude about it. If you don't have a yeah. positive attitude, you'll go nowhere. Like, but yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, and I can I can tell you when his younger brother Clayton was diagnosed that in talking to his mom, she told me that Brayden was her rock, that he was the one with the positive attitude, like telling her things that from the positive perspective, you know, he was really he, he practices what he preaches right there because he he was definitely her rock during that time of the initial diagnosis for her younger son. Well, thank you for sharing. I really appreciate that. I appreciate you all being here. I think this is really informative. Um, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to take in around all of this stuff. Um, I do have one more question. Is there anywhere that people can go to like learn more or even donate, um, things like that? Well, I can answer that. You can go to the PPMD website, Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, or, or you can go to endenddushen.org and learn more. We have a fabulous website and have a conference coming up at the end of July that should be intense and very comprehensive, and we're thrilled for interest in Duchenne. Okay, great. Well, thank you guys so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. See you next time. Nothing we say in this podcast is representative of any specific plan and should not be construed as legal, regulatory, or accounting advice. If there is any discrepancy between what we say and your plan document, your plan document will always